Uh, I wanted to take this chance to talk to all my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, just because I wanted to touch you after I'm gone, but I don't want it to be a bad thing. Not, I love you all, and I just hope that these little poems and these stories will make you remember me in a good way, and I hope that these aren't too dark and that you always just remember that I love you and that uh, I enjoy every minute that I was with every one of you. And I'm going to start out with a kind of a dark poem that'll maybe set the tone so you won't be as, you know, uh, depressed by the other ones. So I'm starting out with a poem called Being by... Janet Weinberger. I cannot quite believe that I am dead. I had been young forever and I grew more alive with every day of being. Yet I never grew as tall as I wanted to be. To be forever reaching, on tiptoe ever stretching, holding the wind to my face and my face moving into the wind and my feet running into the hills. I cannot quite believe that I will not be again. I gave the earth my life because it was all that I had to give. I used to touch my fingers to her heart till every sense churned with her breath and I belonged to her. And now I will not grow again or run or breathe or be who used to think that living was the sole essence of me. The uh, second poem that I'm going to read, <clears throat> kind of sad, but you know, sad's not all that bad. And this is called Little Boy Blue by Eugene Field. I told it often to my kids, and uh, although it was sad, and, Sometimes it makes people cry. I, I couldn't help laughing because in its sadness, it's, it was kind of funny. And, and it was funny that it would make people sad, but I always liked it. So this is Little Boy B Blue by Eugene Field. <clears throat> the little toy dog is covered with dust, but sturdy and staunch he stands. The little toy soldier is red with rust and his musket molds in his hands. Time was when the little toy dog was new and the soldier was passing fair and that was the time when our little boy Blue kissed them and put them there. Now don't you go till I come, he said, and don't you make any noise. So toddling off to his trundle bed, he dreamed of his pretty toys. And as he was dreaming, an angel song awakened our little boy blue. Oh, the years are many, the years are long, but the little toy friends are true. I, faithful to little boy blue, they stand, each in the same old place, awaiting the touch of a little hand, the smile of a little face. And they wonder, as waiting the long years through in the dust of that empty little chair, what has become of our little boy Blue since he kissed them and put them there? The next one is uh, another one by Eugene Field. And this one isn't sad, so you don't need to worry about getting all misty-eyed, which you probably wouldn't anyway. Okay, this is Winkin, Blinkin, and Nod by Eugene Field. Winkin, Blinkin, and Nod one night sailed off in a wooden shoe, sailed on a river of crystal light into a sea of dew. Where are you going and what do you wish? The old moon asked the three. We have come to fish for the herring fish that live in this beautiful sea. Nets of silver and gold have we, said Winkin, Blinkin, and Nod. The old moon laughed and sang a song as they rocked in the wooden shoe, and the wind that sped them all night long ruffled the waves of dew. 
The little stars were the herring fish that lived in the beautiful sea. Now cast your nets wherever you wish. Never afeard are we. So cried the stars to the fishermen three, winking, blinking, and nod. All night long their nets they threw to the stars in the twinkling foam. Then down from the skies came the wooden shoe bringing the fishermen home. "'Twas all so pretty a sail, it seemed, as if it could not be. "'And some folk thought twas a dream they'd dreamed "'of sailing that beautiful sea. "'But I shall name you the fishermen three, "'Winkin', Blinkin', and Nod. "'Winkin' and Blinkin' are two little eyes, "'and Nod is a little head. "'And the wooden shoe that sailed the sky "'is a wee one's trundle bed. "'So shut your eyes while Mother sings "'of wonderful sights that be.' And you shall see the beautiful things as you rock on the misty sea. Where the old shoe rocked the fishermen three, winking, blinking, and nod. The next uh, poem I'd like to read to you is a poem I always liked. Uh, it's called... The House by the Side of the Road, and it's also by Eugene Field. <clears throat> there are hermit souls that live withdrawn in the place of their self-content. There are souls like stars that dwell apart in a fellowless firmament. There are pioneer souls that blaze their paths where highways never ran. But let me live by the side of the road and be a friend to man. Let me live in a house by the side of the road where the race of men go by. The men who are good and the men who are bad as good and as bad as I. I would not sit in the scorner's seat nor hurl the cynic's ban. Let me live in a house by the side of the road and be a friend to man. I see from my house by the side of the road, by the side of the highway of life, the men who press with the ardor of hope, the men who are faint with the strife, but I turn not away from their smiles nor their tears, both parts of an infinite plan. Let me live in a house by the side of the road and be a friend to man. I know there are brook-gladdened meadows ahead and mountains of wearisome height, that the road passes on through the long afternoon and stretches away to the night. And still I rejoice when the travelers rejoice and weep with the strangers that moan nor live in my house by the side of the road like a man who dwells alone. Let me live in my house by the side of the road where the race of men go by. They are good, they are bad, they are weak, they are strong, wise, foolish, so am I. Then why should I sit in the scorner's seat or hurl the cynic's ban? Let me live in my house by the side of the road and be a friend to man. Uh, <clears throat> this story is called The Happy Prince, and almost everyone cries. When uh, I read this story, and I, I would half laugh and half cry, but I always had trouble reading it, even if I read it to my class. Uh, I think all of you knew that I was a teacher for quite a few years, and sometimes I couldn't quite get through this uh, story without crying, so... Feel free to cry. This is The Happy Prince by Oscar Wilde. High above the city on a tall column stood the statue of the happy prince. He was gilded all over with thin leaves of fine gold. For eyes he had two bright sapphires and a large red ruby glowed on his sword hilt. He was very much admired indeed. He is as beautiful as a weathercock, remarked one of the town councillors who wished to gain a reputation for having artistic tastes. Only not quite so useful, he added, fearing lest people should think him unpractical, which he really was not. Why can't you be like the happy prince, asked a sensible mother of her little boy, who was crying for the moon. The happy prince never dreams of crying for anything. I am glad there is someone in the world who is quite happy, muttered a disappointed man as he gazed at the wonderful statue. He looks just like an angel, said the charity children as they came out of the cathedral in their bright scarlet cloaks and their clean white pinafores. How do you know, said the mathematical master. You have never seen one. Ah, but we have in our dreams, answered the children. 
and the mathematical master frowned and looked very severe, for he did not approve of children dreaming. One night there flew over the city a little swallow. His friends had gone away to Egypt six weeks before, but he had stayed behind, for he was in love with the most beautiful reed. He had met her early in the spring, and he was flying down the river after a big yellow moth, and had been so attracted by her slender waist that he had stopped to talk to her. Shall I love you? said the swallow, <clears throat> who liked to come to the point at once, and the reed made him a low bow. So he flew round and round her, touching the water with his wings and making silver ripples. This was his courtship, and it lasted all through the summer. It is a ridiculous attachment, twittered the other swallows. She has no money, far too many relatives. And indeed, the river was quite full of reeds. Then, when the summer came, they all flew away. After that, they had gone, he felt lonely, and he began to tire of his lady love. She has no conversation, he said, and I am afraid that she is a coquette, for she is always flirting with the wind. And certainly, whenever the wind blew, the reed made the most graceful curtsies. I admit that she is domestic, he continued, but I love traveling, and my wife, consequently, should love traveling also. Will you come away with me, he said finally to her, but the reed shook her head. She was so attached to her home. You have been trifling with me, he cried. I am off to the pyramids. Goodbye. And he flew away. All day long he flew, and at night time he arrived at the city. Where shall I put up, he said. I hope the town has made preparations. Then he saw the statue on the tall column. I will put up there, he cried. It is a fine position with plenty of fresh air. So he alighted just between the feet of the happy prince. I have a golden bedroom, he said softly to himself as he looked around. And he prepared to go to sleep. But just as he was putting his head under his wing, a large drop of water fell on him. What a curious thing, he cried. There's not a single cloud in the sky. The stars are quite clear and bright, and yet it is raining. The climate in the north of Europe is really dreadful. The reed used to like the rain, but that was merely her selfishness. Then another drop fell. What is the use of a statue if it cannot keep the rain off, he said. I must look for a good chimney pot, and he determined to fly away. But before he had opened his wings, a third drop fell, and he looked up and saw, ah, what did he see? The eyes of the happy prince were filled with tears, and tears were running down his golden cheeks. His face was so beautiful in the moonlight that the little swallow was filled with pity. Who are you, he said. I am the happy prince. Why are you weeping then, asked the swallow. You have quite drenched me. When I was alive and had a human heart, answered the statue, I did not know what tears were, for I lived in the palace of San Suchi, where sorrow is not allowed to enter. In the daytime I played with my companions in the garden, and in the evening I led the dance in the great hall. Round the garden ran a very lofty wall, but I never cared to ask what lay beyond it. Everything about me was so beautiful. My courtiers called me the happy prince, and happy indeed I was, if pleasure be happiness. So I lived, and so I died. And now that I am dead, they have set me up here so high that I can see all the ugliness and all the misery of my city. And though my heart is made of lead, yet I cannot choose but weep. What? He is not solid gold, said the swallow to himself. He was too polite to make any personal remarks out loud. Far away, continued the statue in a low musical voice, far away in a little street there is a poor house. One of the windows is open, and through it I can see a woman seated at a table. Her face is thin and worn, and she has coarse red hands, all pricked by the needle, for she is a seamstress. 
she is embroidering passion flowers on a satin gown for the loveliest of the queen's maids of honor to wear at the next court ball. In a bed in the corner of the room, her little boy is lying ill. He has a fever and is asking for oranges. His mother has nothing to give him but river water, so he is crying. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, will you not bring her the ruby out of my sword hilt? My feet are fastened to this pedestal and I cannot move. I am waited for in Egypt, said the swallow. My friends are flying up and down the Nile and talking to the large lotus flowers. Soon they will go to sleep in the tomb of the great king. The king is there himself in his painted coffin. He is wrapped in yellow linen and embalmed with spices. Round his neck is a chain of pale green jade, and his hands are like withered leaves. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me for one night and be my messenger? The boy is so thirsty and the mother so sad. I don't think I like boys, answered the swallow. Last summer when I was staying on the river, there were two rude boys, the miller's sons, who were always throwing stones at me. They never hit me, of course. We swallows fly far too well for that. And besides, I come of a family famous for its agility. But still, it was a mark of disrespect. But the happy prince looked so sad that the little swallow was sorry. It is very cold here, he said, but I will stay with you for one night and be your messenger. Thank you, little swallow, said the prince. So the swallow picked out the great ruby from the prince's sword and flew away with it in his beak over the roofs of the town. He passed by the cathedral tower where the white marble angels were sculptured. He passed by the palace and heard the sound of dancing. A beautiful girl came out on the balcony with her lover. How wonderful the stars are, he said to her, and how wonderful is the power of love. I hope my dress will be ready in time for the state ball, she answered. I have ordered passion flowers to be embroidered on it, but the seamstresses are so lazy. He passed over the river and saw the lanterns hanging to the masts of ships. He passed over the ghetto and saw the old Jews bargaining with each other and weighing out money in copper scales. At last he came to the poor house and looked in. The boy was tossing feverishly on his bed, and the mother had fallen asleep. She was so tired. In he hopped and laid the great ruby on the table beside the woman's thimble. Then he flew gently around the bed, fanning the boy's forehead with his wings. How cool I feel, said the boy. I must be getting better. And he sank into a delicious slumber. Then the swallow flew back to the happy prince and told him what he had done. It is curious, he remarked, but I feel quite warm now, although it is so cold. That is because you have done a good action, said the prince. And the little swallow began to think, and then he fell asleep. Thinking always made him sleepy. When day broke, he flew down to the river and had a bath. What a remarkable phenomenon, said the professor of ornithology as he was passing over the bridge, a swallow in winter. And he wrote a long letter about it in the local newspaper. Everyone quoted it. It was full of so many words that they could not understand. Tonight I go to Egypt, said the swallow. And he was in high spirits at the prospect. He visited all the public monuments and sat a long time on top of the church steeple. Whenever he went, the sparrows chirruped and said to each other, What a distinguished stranger! So he enjoyed himself very much. When the moon rose, he flew back to the happy prince. Have you any commissions for Egypt? he cried. I am just starting. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. Will you not stay with me one night longer? I am waited for in Egypt, answered the swallow. Tomorrow my friends will fly up to the second cataract. The river horse couches there among the bulrushes, and a great granite throne sits the god of Memnon. All night long he watches the stars, and when the morning star shines, he utters one cry of joy, and then he is silent. At noon the yellow lions come down to the river's the water's edge to drink. They have eyes like green burls, and their roar is louder than the roar of the cataract. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince. 
Far away across the city, I see a young man in a garret. He is leaning over a desk covered with papers. In a tumbler by his side, there is a bunch of withered violets. His hair is brown and crisp, and his lips are red as a pomegranate, and he has large and dreamy eyes. He is trying to finish a play for the director of the theater, but he is too cold to write any more. There is no fire in the grate, and hunger has made him faint. I will wait with you one night longer, said the swallow, who really had a good heart. Shall I take him another ruby? Alas, <clears throat> I have no ruby now, said the prince. My eyes are all that I have left. They are made of rare sapphires which were brought out of India a thousand years ago. Pluck out one of them and take it to him. He will sell it to the jeweler and buy food and firewood and finish his play. Dear prince, said the swallow, I cannot do that. And he began to weep. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince, do as I command you. So the swallow plucked out the prince's eye and flew away to the student's garret. It was easy enough to get in as there was a hole in the roof. Through this he darted and came into the room. The young man had his head buried in his hands. So he did not hear the flutter of the bird's wings, and when he looked up he found a beautiful sapphire lying on the withered violets. I am beginning to be appreciated, he cried. This is from some great admirer. Now I can finish my play. And he looked quite happy. The next day the swallow flew down to the harbor. He sat on the mast of a large vessel and watched the sailors hauling big chests out of the hold with ropes. Heave ahoy, they shouted as each chest came up. I'm going to Egypt, cried the swallow. But nobody minded, and when the moon rose he flew back to the happy prince. I am come to bid you good-bye, he cried. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince, will you not stay with me one night longer? It is winter, answered the swallow, and the chill snow will soon be here. In Egypt the sun is warm, on the green palm trees and the crocodiles lie in mud and look lazily about them. My companions are building a nest in the temple of Baalbek, and the pink and white doves are watching them and cooing to each other. Dear Prince, I must leave you, but I will never forget you. And next spring I will bring you back two beautiful jewels in place of those you have given away. The ruby shall be redder than a red rose, and the sapphire shall be as blue as the great sea. In the square below, said the happy Prince, there stands a little match girl. She has let her matches fall on the gutter, and they are all spoiled. Her father will beat her if she does not bring home some money, and she's crying. She has no shoes or stockings, and her little head is bare. Pluck out my other eye and give it to her, and her father will not beat her. I will stay with you one night longer, said the swallow, but I cannot pluck out your eye. You would be quite blind then. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince, do as I command you. So he plucked out the prince's other eye and darted down with it. He swooped past the match girl and slipped the jewel in the palm of her hand. What a lovely bit of glass, cried the little girl, and she ran home laughing. Then the swallow came back to the prince. You are quite blind now, he said, so I will stay with you forever. No, little swallow, said the poor prince. You must go away to Egypt. I will stay with you always, said the swallow, and he slept at the prince's feet. All the next day he sat on the prince's shoulder and told him stories of what he had seen in strange lands. He told him of the red ibises who stand in long rows on the banks of the Nile and catch goldfish in their beaks, of the sphinx who is as old as the world itself and lives in the desert and knows everything of the merchants who walk slowly by the side of their camels and carry amber beads in their hands of the king of the mountains of the moon who is as black as ebony and worships a large crystal of the great green snake that sleeps in a palm tree and has twenty priests to feed it with honey cakes and of the pygmies who sail over a big lake on large flat leaves and are always at war with the butterflies dear little swallow said the prince you tell me of marvelous things but more marvelous than anything is the suffering of men and women. 
There is no mystery so great as misery. Fly over my city, little swallow, and tell me what you see there. So the swallow flew over the great city and saw the rich making merry in their beautiful houses while the beggars were sitting at the gates. He flew into dark lanes and saw the white faces of starving children looking out listlessly at the black streets. Under the archway of a bridge, two little boys were lying in one another's arms to try and keep themselves warm. How hungry we are, they said. You must not lie here, shouted the watchman, and they wandered out into the rain. Then he flew back and told the prince what he had seen. I am covered with fine gold, said the prince. You must take it off, leaf by leaf, and give it to my poor. The living always think that gold can make them happy. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold the swallow picked off till the happy prince looked quite dull and gray. Leaf after leaf of the fine gold he brought to the poor and the children's faces grew rosier and they laughed and played games in the street. We have bread now, they cried. Then the snow came and after the snow came the frost. The streets looked as if they were made of silver. They were so bright and glistening. Long icicles like crystal daggers hung down from eaves of the houses. Everybody went about in furs and the little boys wore scarlet caps and skated on the ice. The poor little swallow grew colder and colder, but he would not leave the prince. He loved him too well. He picked up crumbs outside the baker's door when the baker was not looking and he tried to keep himself warm by flapping his wings. But at last he knew that he was going to die. He had just enough strength to fly up to the prince's shoulder once more. Goodbye, dear prince, he murmured. Will you let me kiss your hand? I am glad that you are going to Egypt at last, little swallow, said the prince. You have stayed too long here, but you must kiss me on the lips, for I love you. It is not Egypt that I am going, said the swallow. I am going to the house of death. Death is the brother of sleep, is it not? And he kissed the happy prince on the lips and fell down dead at his feet. <clears throat> at that moment, a curious crack sounded inside the statue, as if something had broken. The fact is that the leaden heart had snapped right in two. Certainly was a dreadfully hard frost. Early the next morning, the mayor was walking in the square below in company with the town councillors. As they passed the column, he looked up at the statue. Dear me, how shabby the happy prince looks, he said. How shabby indeed, cried the town councillors, who always agreed with the mayor, and they went up to look at it. The ruby has fallen out of his sword, his eyes are gone, and he is golden no longer, said the mayor. In fact, he is little better than a beggar. Little better than a beggar, said the town councillors. And here is actually a dead bird at his feet, continued the mayor. We must really issue a proclamation that birds are not to be allowed to die here. And the town clerk made a note of the suggestion. So they pulled down the statue of the happy prince. As he is no longer beautiful, he is no longer useful, said the art professor at the university. Then they melted the statue in a furnace, and the mayor held a meeting of the corporation to decide which, what was to be done with the metal. We must have another statue, of course, he said, and it shall be a statue of myself, of myself, said each of the town councillors, and they quarreled. When I heard of them, when I last heard of them, they were quarreling still. What a strange thing, said the overseer of the workmen at the foundry. This broken heart, lead heart, will not melt in the furnace. We must throw it away. So they threw it on the dust heap, where the dead swallow was also lying. Bring me the two most precious things in the city, said God to one of his angels. And the angel brought him the leaden heart and the dead bird. You have rightly chosen, said God, for in my garden of paradise this little bird shall sing forever, and in my city of gold the happy prince shall praise me.
Okay, on a lighter note, um, you, did you get your Kleenexes and everything and finish that one up? Because on a lighter note, this is a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It's a long one, and I just read this verse 53, which is really well known, and you've probably heard parts of it. So this is it. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with a passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seem to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life. And if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. This is one of my favorite poems, and it's called Abu Ben Adhem, and it's written by Lee Hunt. Abu Ben Adhem, may his tribe increase, awoke one night from a deep dream of peace and saw within the moonlight in his room, making it rich and like a lily in bloom, an angel writing in a book of gold. Exceeding peace had made Ben Adhem bold. And to the presence in the room he said, What writest thou? The vision raised its head and with a look made of all sweet accord answered the names of those who love the Lord. And is mine one? said Abu. Nay, not so, replied the angel. Abu spoke more low, but cheerily still, and said, I pray thee then, Write me as one that loves his fellow men. The angel wrote and vanished. The next night it came again, and with a great awakening light, and showed the names whom God, love of God had blessed. And lo, Ben Adhem's name led all the rest. And here is another one by Lee Hunt. It's called Jenny Kissed Me. Jenny kissed me when we met. Jumping from the chair she sat in. Time, you three, thief, who love to get sweets into your list, put that in. Say I'm weary. Say I'm sad. Say that health and wealth have missed me. Say I'm growing old. But add, Jenny kissed me. Okay, this is a... Uh, a poem by Rudyard Kipling called Gunga Din. And all of us in the family learned to love it because my dad had memorized a lot of it and he'd say different phrases of this. And it's so still clear in my mind the way he would recite to us part of Gunga Din. And this is it. This is Gunga Din by Rudyard Kipling. You may talk of gin and beer when you're quartered safe out here and you're sent to penny fights and Aldershot it. But if it comes to slaughter, you will do your work on water and you'll lick the bloomin' boots of them that's got it. Now an inch's sunny, sunny climb where I used to spend my time, a servant of Her Majesty the Queen, of all them black-faced crew, the finest man I knew, was our regimental bisty, Gunga Dean. He was Dean, 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 you limpin' lump of brick dust, Gunga Din. Hi, slippery hitheroo, water, get it, Paneloo, you squidgy-nosed old idol, Gunga Din. The uniform he wore was nothing much before and rather less than arf of that behind. For a twisty piece of rag and a goatskin water bag was all the field equipment he could find. When the sweatin' troop train lay in a sidin' through the day where the eat would make your bloomin' eyebrows crawl, we shouted, Harry, by, till our throats were bricky dry. Then we whopped him cause he couldn't serve us all. It was din, 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 you heathen. Where the mischief have you been? 
You put some jewelry in it, or I'll morrow you this minute if you don't fill up my helmet, Gungadeen. He would dot and carry one till the longest day was done, and he didn't seem to know the use of fear. If we charged or broke or cut, you could bet your bloomin' nut he'd be waiting fifty paces right flank near. With its music on his back, he would skip with our attack and watch us till the bugles made retire. And for all his dirty eyed, he was white, clear white inside when he went to tend the wounded under fire. It was Dean, Dean, Dean with the bullets kicking dust spots on the green. When the cartridges ran out, you could hear the front file shout, Hi, ammunition mules on Gunga Din. I shan't forget the night when I dropped behind the fight with a bullet where my belt plate should have been. I was choking mad with thirst, and the man that spied me first was our good old grinning, grunting Gunga Din. He lifted up my head, and he plugged me where I bled, and he gave me half a pint of water green. It was crawling and it stunk, but of all the drinks I've drunk, I'm gratefulest to one from Gunga Din. It was Din, Din, Din. Here's a beggar with a bullet through his spleen. He's chawing up the ground and he's kicking all around. For God's sake, get the water, Gunga Din. He carried me away to where a dooley lay, and a bullet came, come and drilled the beggar clean. He put me safe inside. And just before he died, I hoped you like your drinks, says Gunga Dean. So I'll meet him later on in the place where he is gone, where it's all his double drill and no canteen. He'll be squatting on the coals, giving drink to poor damned souls, and I'll get a swig in hell from Gunga Dean. Din, 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 you Lazarus and leather Gunga Dean, though I've belted you and flayed you by the living God that made you. You're a better man than I am, Gunga Dean. This was a lovely poem. I, I don't know if all of you have heard of it, but you should have. So I'm going to read it to The Children's Hour by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Between the dark and the daylight when the night is beginning to lower comes a pause in the day's occupation that is known as the children's hour. I hear in the chamber above me the patter of little feet the sound of a door that is open and voices soft and sweet. From my study, study I see in the lamplight descending the broad hall stair, grave Alice and laughing Allegra and Edith with golden hair. A whisper and then a silence, yet I know by their merry eyes they are plotting and planning together to take me by surprise. A sudden rush from the hall stairway, a sudden raid from the hall. By three doors left in garden they enter my castle wall. They climb up into my turret or the, or the arms and back of my chair. If I try to escape, they surround me. They seem to be everywhere. They almost devour me with kisses, their arms about me entwine, till I think of the Bishop of Bingham in his mouse tower on the rhyme. Do you think, O oh blue-eyed banditti, because you have scaled the wall, such an old mustache as I am is not a match for you all? I have you fast in my fortress and will not let you depart but put you into the dungeon in the round tower of my heart. And there I will keep you forever, yes, forever and a day, till the walls shall crumble to ruin and molder in dust away. This next one is The Village Blacksmith by Henry uh, Wadsworth Longfellow. My sister Helen was quite, she's almost like a director of, she was always has, having us, be in plays, and this is one of the poems that she almost made us commit to memory. And uh, I've remembered it, of course, all my life because of that. But I always think of her. The Village Blacksmith by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Under a spreading chestnut tree, the village smithy stands. The smith, the mighty man, is he with large and sinewy hands, and the muscle of his brawny arms are strong as iron bands. His hair is crisp and black and long, his face is like the tan. His brow is wet with honest sweat, he earns whatever he can, and looks the whole world in the face, for he owes not any man. Week in, week out, from morn till night, you can hear his bellows blow. You can hear him swing his heavy sledge with measured beat and slow, like a sexton ringing the village bell when the evening sun is low. 
and children coming home from school looking at the open door. They love to see the flaming forge and hear the bellows roar and catch the burning sparks that fly like chaff from a thrashing floor. He goes on Sunday to the church and sits among his boys. He hears the parson pray and preach. He hears his daughter's voice singing in the village choir, and it makes his heart rejoice. It sounds to him like her mother's voice singing in paradise. He needs must think of her once more, how in the grave she lies, and with his hard, rough hand he wipes a tear out of his eyes. Toiling, rejoicing, sorrowing, onward to life he goes. Each morning sees some task begun, each evening sees it close. Something attempted, something done, he has earned a night's repose. Thanks, thanks to thee, my worthy friend, for the lesson thou hast taught. Thus at the flaming forge of life our fortunes must be wrought. Thus on its sounding anvil shaped each burning deed and thought. This poem is uh, probably one you've heard people talk about. It's called Woodman Spare That Tree by George Pope Morris. Woodman spare that tree, touch not a single bough. In youth it sheltered me and I'll protect it now. Twas my forefather's hand that placed it near his cot. There, woodman, let it stand, thy axe shall harm it not. That old familiar true tree whose glory and renown are spread o'er land and sea, and wouldst thou hew it down? Woodman, forbear thy stroke, cut not its earthbound ties. O spare that aged oak, now towering to the skies. When but an idle boy I sought its grateful shade, and all that gushing joy, here too my sisters played. My mother kissed me here, my father pressed my hand. Forgive this foolish tear, but let that old oak stand. My heart strings round thee cling, close as thy bark, old friend. Here shall the wild bird sing, and still thy branches bend. Old tree, the storm will brave, and woodman leave the spot. While I have a hand to save, thy axe shall harm it not. Now this is by Edgar Allan Poe, and there will be others by Edgar Allan Poe if we have space. Uh, but all of his are such fun to read. Uh, and this one's called Annabel Lee. It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea. But we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee, with a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago in this kingdom by the sea a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her high-born kinsmen came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulcher in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabelle Lee. But our love, it was stronger by love than the, far than the love of those that were older than we, of many far wiser than we, and neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And the stars never rise, but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so all the night tide I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride in her sepulcher there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. This one is Maud Muller by John Greenleaf Whittier. Maud Muller on a summer's day raked the meadow sweet with hay. Beneath her torn hat glowed the wealth of simple beauty and rustic health. Singing she wrought in her merry glee, the mockbird echoed from his tree. But when she glanced at the far-off town, while from its hill slope looking down, the sweet song died in a vague unrest and a nameless longing filled her breast, a wish that she hardly dared to own for something better than she had known. The judge rode slowly down the lane, smoothing his horse's chestnut mane. 
He drew his bridle in the shade of the apple trees to greet the maid and ask a draft from the spring that flowed through the meadow across the road. She stooped where the cool spring bubbled up and filled him for him her small tin cup and blushed as she gave it looking down on her feet so bare and her tattered gown. Thanks, said the judge, a sweeter draft from a fairer hand was never quaffed. He spoke of the grass and flowers and trees, of the singing birds and the humming bees. They talked of the haying and wondered whether the cloud in the west would bring foul weather, and Maud forgot her briar-torn gown and her graceful ankles bare and brown, and listened while a pleased surprise looked from her long-lashed hazel eyes. At last, like one who for delay seeks a vain excuse, he rode away. Maud Muller looked and sighed. Ah, me, that I the judge's bride might be. He would dress me up in silk so fine and praise and toast me at his wine. My father should wear a broadcloth coat and my brother should sail a painted boat. I'd dress my mother so grand and gay and the baby should have a new toy each day and I'd feed the hungry and clothe the poor and all should bless me who left our door. The judge looked back as he climbed the hill and saw Mud Muller standing still. A form more fair, a face more sweet, ne'er hath it been my lot to meet. And her modest answer and graceful air show her wise and good as she is fair. Would she were mine and I today like her a harvester of hay? No doubtful balance of rights and wrongs, no weary lawyers with endless tongues, but low of cattle and song of birds and health and quiet and loving words. But he thought of his sister, proud and cold, and his mother, vain of her rank and gold. So closing his heart, the judge rode on, and Maud was left in the field alone. But the lawyers smiled that afternoon when he hummed in court an old love tune, and the young girl mused beside the well till the rain on the unraked clover fell. He wedded a wife of richest dower who lived for fashion as he for power. Yet oft in his marble hearth bright glow he watched a picture come and go. And sweet Maud Muller's hazel eyes looked out in their innocent surprise. Oft when the wine in his glass was red he longed for the wayside well instead and closed his eyes on his garnished rooms to dream of meadows and clover blooms. And the proud man sighed with a secret pain. Ah, that I were free again. Free as when I rode that day where the barefoot maiden raked the hay. She wedded a man unlearned and poor, and many children played round her door. But care and sorrow and childbirth pain left their traces on heart and brain. And oft when the summer sun shone hot on the new-mown hay in the meadow lot, and she heard the little spring brook fall over the roadside through the wall, in the shade of the apple tree again she saw a rider draw his rein. And gazing down with a timid grace, she felt his pleased eyes, pleased eyes read her face. Sometimes her narrow kitchen walls stretched away into stately halls. The weary wheel to a spinet turned, a tallow candle and astral burned. And for him who sat by the chimney lug, dozing and grumbling or pipe and mug, a manly form at her side she saw, and joy was duty and love was law. And she took up her burden of life again, saying only, it might have been. Alas for maiden, alas for judge, for rich repiner and household drudge. God pity them both and pity us all, who vainly the dreams of youth recall. For of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. Ah, well, for us all some sweet hope lies deeply buried from human eyes, and in the hereafter angels may roll the stone from its grave away. This poem is by John Greenleaf Whittier. It's called In School Days. Still sits the schoolhouse by the road, a ragged beggar sunning. Around it still the sumacs grow and blackberry vines are running. Within the master's desk is seen, deep scarred by wraps official, the warping floor, the battered seats, the jackknife's carved initial, 
the charcoal frescoes on its wall, its doors worn sealed, betraying, the feet that creeping slow to school went storing out to playing. Long years ago, a winter sun shone over it at setting, lit up its western window panes and low eaves icy fretting. It touched the tangled golden curls and brown eyes full of grieving, of one who still her steps delayed when all the school were leaving. For near her stood the little boy, her childish favor singled, his cap pulled low upon a face where pride and joy were mingled, pushing with restless feet the snow. To right and left he lingered, as restlessly her tiny hands the blue-checked apron fingered. He saw her lift her eyes, he felt the soft hands light caressing, and heard the tremble of her voice as if a fault confessing. I'm sorry that I spelt the word. I hate to go above you because the brown eyes lower fell, because you see I love you. Still memory to a gray-haired man that sweet child face is showing. Dear girl, the grasses on her grave have forty years been growing. He lives to learn in life's hard school. How few who pass above him. Lament their triumph and his loss, like her, because they love him. I wanted to, uh, kind of a little change here, and these are stories that Sister Mildred had told to me. She was a nun at the St. Labray where I taught. She was just a wonderful woman in so many ways. And she told me these kind of stories that stay with you forever. And this first little story was called Mother's Love, and it's a story about um, a young man. Uh, he lived with his mother out in a, in a little village, a little farm close to a village. And uh, one day he got terribly angry at something that she had done, and he killed her. He, and he took his, her heart. And as he was walking across the fields, he stumbled carrying this heart. And his mother's voice said, Son, are you hurt? Then another one that she, it was, it was kind of similar in this. This was father and son. Uh, it's a story of a, in the olden days how the fathers used to live with the family and as he grew older and older and one day the son was just uh, so upset with his father that he dragged him out across their beating and pushing him and shoving him then he got to a place beyond the field and his father said son you can stop now this is as far as I dragged my father. And then the last one is about truth. And it's, uh, it's a little bit, I don't know, you're just going to have to think what you can about it. Katie had some thoughts about it when I told it to her in the car. Anyway, truth. There were this, these young men, there were four of them, and they wanted to find out just what truth was. And they talked and talked and talked. And they worked and worked and worked. And they read and read and read. And they finally decided that they would give over to this one the search for the truth. So this one that they had appointed walked over fields. He walked over mountains. He crossed seas. And finally over blistering and through blistering deserts he finally found truth in this cave and it was an old crone sitting back in this corner and she was ugly and he said how can I tell my friends that you are this ugly ugly person and the old crone says Tell them I am beautiful. That's truth. All right, this is a poem by Edward Rollins Sill. It's called The Fool's Prayer. 
The royal feast was done. The king sought some new sport to banish care, and to his jester cried, Sir fool, kneel now and make for us a prayer. The jester doffed his cap and bells and stood the mocking court before. They could not see the bitter smile behind the painted grin he wore. He bowed his head and bent his knee upon the monarch's silken stool. His pleading voice arose, O oh Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. No pity, Lord, could change the heart from red with wrong to white as wool. The rod must heal the sin, but Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. Tis not by guilt the onward sweep of truth and right, O oh Lord, we stay. Tis by our follies that so long we hold the earth from heaven away. These clumsy feet still in the mire go crushing blossoms without end. These hard, well-meaning hands we thrust among the heartstrings of a friend. The ill-timed truth we might have kept, who knows how sharp it pierced and stung. The word we had not sense to say, who knows how grandly it had rung. Our faults no tenderness should ask, the chastening stripes must cleanse them all. But for our blunders, oh, in shame, before the eyes of heaven we fall. Earth bears no balsam for mistakes. Men crown the knave and scourge the fool, the tool that did his will. But thou, O oh Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. The room was hushed. In silence rose the king and sought his gardens cool and walked apart and murmured low, Be merciful to me, a fool. I wasn't quite aware of the prejudice I held from, I had grown up with, my dad had a certain kind of prejudice and I think my mother did too, but we, it, we didn't really become aware of it till we were going to college and we had a black professor up there. And he started pointing out the things like nigger in the woodpile and things that we'd always said that we didn't realize, you know, how they might have hurt people, and I guess that was the beginning of this epiphany I had about prejudice and just how bad it was. And this one poem that I always remembered was, <clears throat> it was always reminded me of that and our epiphany, I guess. And the little poem was, Once riding in old Baltimore, head filled, heart filled with glee, I saw a Baltimorean keep looking straight at me. Now he was six and very small, and I was no whit bigger. And so I smiled at him, and he stuck out his tongue and called me nigger. I saw the all whole of Baltimore from June until December. Of all the things that I saw there, that's all that I remember. Okay, this is a poem by William Henley called Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears, looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Another thing that you probably know of me is that I'm anti-war. I just think that you know, war is so stupid that we kill one another and in another generation we're friends. And uh, One of the things that really struck me in this anti-war poem by Siegfried Sassoon, Does It Matter? Does it matter losing your legs? For people will always be kind. And you need not show that you mind when the others come in after hunting to gobble their muffins and eggs. Does it matter losing your sight 
There's such splendid work for the blind, and people will always be kind. As you sit on the terrace, remembering and turning your face to the light, do they matter, those dreams from the pit? You can drink and forget and be glad. And people won't say that you're mad, for they'll know you fought for your country, and no one will worry a bit.